Welcome to The Intuitive Edge, episode 177. Today's guest, an amazing self-published author of 100,000 books, Dylan Quarles. As an intuitive writer, a lot of just trusting your storytelling abilities to take you where the story needs to go, and that includes surprising yourself. And the Ruins of Mars trilogy in particular is full of moments that surprised me as the author when I was writing it. You know, I wasn't planning on going in that direction, but that's the direction that I went in because I was just writing from a place of intuition rather than a very regimented plot plot. Welcome to the Intuitive Edge. I'm Victoria Lynn Weston, your host. I'm an intuitive business consultant, entrepreneur, and founder of Studio Carlton. We're voice designers, producers, and developers of custom Amazon Alexa skills. I embrace big, bold ideas and love doing the unpredictable when it comes to helping business owners and professionals expand their brand, gain recognition, raise their visibility, and most importantly, attract new business. The future is here, and it's all about voice. Check out StudioCarlton.com. Dylan Quarles is my guest today, and I'm super excited about it, and you should be too, because this person an incredible writer, self-published, has his own publishing company now, has sold over 100,000 copies, and he was awarded the 2021 BIBA Winning Author Award. He was born and raised in Pacific Northwest. He spent most of his youth involved in various creative projects. He graduated from the Evergreen State College, and he holds a BA in film production. Dylan is known for his descriptive scene writing, strong and intriguing characters, and deft plotting. His novels have garnered over 100,000 downloads and hundreds of glowing reviews. His latest novel, There Will Be Monsters, was the recipient and the Best Indie Book Award for Action and Adventure. Dylan is currently working on a biography about the life and disappearance of Stephen Quebecki, a man who went missing in 1978 only to wake up in a field 15 months later with no memory of the event. Let's go connect with Dylan Quarles and learn about his books, how he sold 100,000 copies, what he's working on now, and how his intuition fit and doesn't fit into his creative writing process. Dylan, it's a pleasure to have you here. And prior to our little uh, time together on our podcast, I did some research, and I have to say, I was totally blown away. I mean, who sells as many books as you do? It happens, but I'm constantly surprised that it's happened to me. It's just, it was, I was just, at first I thought I had the wrong person. I thought, oh my God, 100,000 books. I mean, who does that? And second, my, my other uh, thought was, how come these aren't, you know, um, into movies just yet? Or maybe you're working on movies. Well, that's the hope. I mean, down the road, I would love for that to happen. My um, education is actually in film. So I became a writer when I couldn't afford to make movies. the films <laughs> that I wanted to make. Uh, but you can do it if you can write. You can you can make whatever movie you'd like, whatever you can imagine. Um, I have had people tell me, uh, fans, that they think my books would make excellent movies. And I, I believe that speaks to the fact that I, I write with a filmmaker's eye. Um, and who knows? You never know what the future holds. Hopefully it'll happen for me. Well, I am is an intuitive person. And, you know, I, I would say definitely you'll probably be signing some type of contract with somebody on the West Coast for a couple of these books. I mean, gosh, after two years off of the pandemic, aren't we all just dying for a good movie? I mean, there hasn't been any done lately that's 
been really. Um, I think Amazon put out a few good ones. I think Netflix, but I don't know. Your 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 stuff seems a little more interesting. And I'm going to segue into um, what is the most famous book that you've written? I think it's called. Hang on here. Um, is that the one with the ruins? Oh yeah, I would say that's right. That is probably my most fam- my most famous books are the Ruins of Mars trilogy. Those are also my oldest books. They were the first ones I wrote um, in about starting in 2012. Uh, those are really popular with um, folks who remember a different era of sci-fi uh, before the dystopian wave kind of took over the genre. Um, because they're not dystopian they're very hopeful weirdly enough there's drama and there's tragedy but they're not about a broken world so much as they are about just a potentially different future and then also the discovery of alien ruins on mars which gets everybody's imagination going um well especially now as we're trying to you know land on mars and you know, have people take trips to Mars and all that? It becomes very timely on on what your intuitive side to, to this creative thing is, because you know, after all, intuition and creativity are kissing cousins. You can't have one without the other. It's so true. And when I started writing those books, or I, I should say, I had a lot of ideas. And when I decided that I was going to take that idea and develop it, um, there was actually a lot happening with Mars at that time. Uh, around 2012 and 2011 um, in the zeitgeist, I guess you could say. So there was my intuition was definitely coming into play with that. You know, we were landing the Curiosity rover uh, at that time. Mars just seemed to be on people's minds and it was on mine for sure when I decided, okay, I'll, I'll take this idea and I'll flesh it out. I'll see where it goes. And I really think that that contributed a lot to the book's early success. Now it has the staying power. It has the fan base. Um, but in the early days, when there's so many titles and you're just competing for a little bit of screen time from somebody, um, I think it really helped to have this Mars story at a very Mars-centric time in our culture. Britain, a total of about eight books, right? Well, I've written uh, five novels and some short stories, and I have another uh, biography that I've co-written that will be coming out hopefully soon as well. I count that among my novels. I mean, it more or less reads like one because that's I'm a novelist. Um, but I'm working every day. I'm plugging away short stories right now because I've got a little one at home and he requires a lot of attention and care. So it's tough to get into the novelist mindset um, with like feeding schedules and nap time. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. Now, being a novel writer, and then I want to go in and say, why don't you learn to do more with screenwriting, which is a completely different ballgame in writing novels. You have to go on for like three pages just to describe a scene. And mm. screenwriting, you basically have two sentences that you're describing. That Have you ever thought about doing that? Like Because if you're going to sell these as movies, you might want to have you know a, a script there, or at least a basis, even though somebody will buy it and write their own version of it. Sure, like an outline would even probably be beneficial. Yeah, I have I have thought of it more and more recently. It's funny that you bring it up today. Um, I, I honestly didn't think that the, that's where the conversation would go, but I'm glad it has because I have been circling the idea of um, at least writing up like an outline of the trilogy because I would imagine that that would be the right way to, to, to bring those to the screen, even if it was like the small screen, like an Amazon limited series or Netflix or, or whatever, because those are so popular these days. People love that, you know, taking a story and fleshing it out eight episodes rather than, you know, two hours. Oh yeah. That's um, exciting. Yeah. So I, you know, the more that we talk about it, the more I realize I probably 
would be advantageous for me to do that. And I've been in a phase right now of my writing life with, with my little guy at home of looking at what I have and really trying to maximize it and make it work for me more than it has in the past rather than um, like I have been in the past. And I think a lot of creatives are, which is just to create, create, create. There's something to be said about taking a little time to really develop what you have created already and, and see what it's capable of doing for you. Exactly. Well, tell me about the uh, the secret history of Port Townsend. Now, that to me sounds like a movie. Oh, I would love that to be a movie. The setting already is perfect for film, and indeed, they've actually filmed uh, movies in Port Townsend. Uh, Officer and a Gentleman was filmed here. Um, that's probably one of the most famous ones. Mm-hmm. Um, Portions of the Ring, the horror movie. Um, it's the town where I grew up. It's uh, on the Olympic Peninsula of Washington State. It's very uh, picturesque, like a postcard. Um, it was once uh, a bustling hub of commerce, a Victorian seaport, um, fishing and shipping down through the um, Puget Sound to Tacoma and Seattle and Olympia, more well-known cities on the on the West Coast here in Washington State. Um, but it uh, it sort of dried up a little bit. The business went elsewhere. Seattle became the the real center of the state. Um, and for whatever reason, Port Townsend just sort of froze. And it created an interesting situation because I think had it continued to grow and burgeon and become more important as a hub of commerce, the old buildings would have been knocked down to make way for new, right? They sure. would have continued to expand and develop the town as it happened they didn't. So Port Townsend's downtown is all old brickwork buildings with um, beautiful tin ceilings inside and plaster molding. Um, The houses up on the hill overlooking downtown are all these uh, jaunty asymmetrical Victorian mansions where the robber barons used to live and have lavish parties. And because it was thriving at this time in American history, Um, There are tunnels through the downtown where they used to Shanghai drunken sailors, and there were numerous buildings in town that used to be brothels and gambling dens where they had bare-knuckle boxing matches. So there's just this rich sort of borderline macabre history, and then when everything just dried up and stopped, um, that's when the ghost stories really started to to come along. And so growing up in Port Townsend as as a young kid in the 90s, Um, I grew up just hearing all kinds of ghost stories and folklores and myths and um, campfire stories. It's very woodsy out here and dramatic. Um, So anybody who spends any amount of time in the woods knows there's a certain kind of haunted quality to that stillness. Well, I can see Um, a Hallmark movie there on one end of the spectrum. On the other one, I see a really good uh, murder mystery. Yeah, well, there certainly is a, a, a lot of mystery here. Um, there's a lot of more questions always than there are answers anytime you're dealing with anything vaguely paranormal. So when I set out to write the secret history of Port Townsend, I mean, the history of Port Townsend is, is fairly well-trod territory, well-trodden territory, excuse me, here in town, there are a lot of historians and they all have, you know, they are all jumping at the bit to tell you the way that what the world used to be. I was more fascinated in, um, kind of like diving into the lore that more informs um, 
the stories that we choose to tell and the stories that we choose not to tell when we're creating a history. And so I focused on folklore and myth and mythology. A lot of it just comes from my own imagination, my own experiences. And so I, I began to develop this series and I've released two so far. Um, the first one is about the Fort Warden State Park, which is at uh, Port Townsend. It's one of our main tourist attractions. It's a sprawling uh, military uh, base and network of bunkers and batteries. And it comes with all these beautiful officers' houses and, and interesting buildings, all built in the early 1900s. It was part of a, the coastal defense system. Um, but now it's just a, a maze of derelict concrete ruins built into this national park into this or into the state park rather I should say and it's all in the hills and in the woods and overlooking the beach and so I set my first um I set my first story there because there's always a mystery about that place you can go into these tunnels that wind through the earth and they're dark and they're damp and your imagination just starts ticking and ticking with what what is at the end of these tunnels to what end did they dig them you know and um and then the second one deals with the maritime community in this town, which is still thriving. And um, the mythology and the lore that people who live and work on the water bring to um, the tapestry of, of our town here. Interesting. So being a writer, so this is what you do full time then, right? Yes, it is. And that's um, a pretty good luxury because a lot of people would love to be able to spend all their time writing. And you're, you're pretty young. You don't look to be much older than 32 Oh, um, hey, I'll take it. I'm actually 36, but you know what? We'll say 32. All right, those that baby boy face, you know. <laughs> anyway, so you're know, still pretty young to be able to do that. Obviously, you've been writing for a few years. So I just want to throw out some titles here so anybody who's listening that likes this sort of um, Mars and uh, the secret history of Port Townsend and the Walking Titan, the Eye of the Apocalypse. I guess that has to do with the ruins of, of Mars. So that, that's part of the Runes of Mars trilogy. That's the conclusion of it. Yeah. And the Man from Rome. So anybody mm -hmm. can buy these books or read little excerpts and reviews on Goodreads, of course, and then of course buy them on Amazon and every place that they sell books and 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 that type of thing. I think people mm -hmm. should read them and then really go out to their favorite producer and encourage them to to buy this and make these movies because there isn't anything like that, you know, out there today. And we need something fresh um, as far as movies and, and storytelling ideas. I certainly agree with you. <laughs> So tell me this. So you write, and and how mm -hmm. does your how's your schedule? Do you get up at a certain time every day, and then you decide to write, or do you just have a passion? You get an idea for a book, and and you write to the wee hours of the morning, and then get yeah. up. I think it, it started out. I I had to be a lot more regimented in the beginning. That's for sure. But now I've been at this for a long time, ten years or more. Um, I've put in my ten thousand hours, and I am a little more flexible than I used to be. I used to need routine i would wake up like you said early in the morning it'd be the first thing i did um and that seemed to be probably some connection between dreaming um actually i listened to your episode on lucid dreaming oh it was a good one was right it was fascinating it's totally fascinating i've actually started doing some of the techniques that he was speaking about in order to like strengthen the bridge between your dreams and and your conscious hours um but I, I I couldn't help but wonder if there was some connection between that. I used to wake up and then immediately need to go write. And, and somewhere in the back of my mind, I thought, I wonder if I'm pulling from my unconscious right now and I need to do it while it's fresh. Um, but as time has gone on, uh, especially as my life has evolved around uh, my son, I write when I can 
and I am now able, I know myself and my systems well enough that I can squirrel away hours uh, here and there and I can really get a lot of work done um, pretty, uh, pretty carefully and pretty quickly. Uh, and I know now as well, what I think a lot of writers struggle with in the early, uh, in the early part of their career is this idea of like the first draft and they get really hung up on if things don't seem right or look right and they can't move on and just go with the flow. And I know now from experience, um, that there are going to be many drafts and it won't always be perfect in the first draft, but the most important thing is to keep going. You know, once you get stuck, you get in that mindset and, and then it's, then you're in trouble. How does your intuition play into your creator process? Well, I really don't map my stories out very carefully. I was actually teaching a workshop last weekend about my um, plotting process. And a lot of it had to do with intuit intuition. And um, there was a, uh, an attendant, uh, somebody who was attending the workshop who had been identified by um, another author as an intuitive writer. And I thought, that's great. That's kind of what I do. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of just trusting um, your storytelling uh, abilities to take you where the story needs to go. And that includes surprising yourself. Um, the Ruins of Mars trilogy in particular is full of moments that surprised me as the author when I was writing it. You know, I wasn't planning on going in that direction, but that's the direction that I went in because I was just writing from a place of intuition rather than um, like very regimented uh, plot, plotting, plot driven. Uh, you know, there, there are, there's the, there's the analogies that I've heard out there. Some people are, some writers are architects and some are gardeners and architects, you know, they plan everything and then they build it just so and gardeners, they plant things over here and over there and they prune as they grow. I kind of fall closer to that, I feel. It's, it's a bit more intuitive. It's a little bit like, let's see what this does and let's see how it feels. So when you're fleshing out a character and, you know, you, obviously you don't know who the character is just yet. I mean, do you, do you flesh them out before you start the, the story or do you just sort of let it evolve as, as, and sort of feel like how that character talks to you as you're writing? It's a bit of both. I think for me, I, I need to know, I need to have somewhat of an idea of who my characters are before I start the story. It's one of the few uh, rituals I have in beginning a new novel is I create a document and I put my characters in the document, their names, and um, I kind of give a brief physical description, although I don't get too hung up on describing what people look like. I'd rather the reader kind of take the, the steering wheel with that. Um, but I do want to have a little bit of an idea of who they are as a person. Um, but that said, I want them to evolve throughout the course of the story, which means leaving room for them to grow. So I, I definitely don't bring like a fully formed um, psychological profile of a character to a novel. I, I bring an outline of, of who they are and kind of where I'd like to see them go by the end of the novel. And then I let the events of the novel um, impact them and then let them uh, change in accordance with that and kind of grow intuitively. Yeah, that's very good. So have you ever thought about writing a love story? Oh, all my novels. Oh, I shouldn't say all, but almost all of my novels contain love stories. The Ruins of Mars in particular has several different love stories in it. I think it's important. I mean, I think it makes for good cinema. I think it makes for good storytelling. There's room for a little bit of everything in, yeah. in a big in a big kind of blockbuster epic. So I, I think it's totally important. And I would have included a love story in my most recent novel, um, the one that has 
came out last year and won the best indie book award, but it was, I started to try to find a way to foster that between two characters. And honestly, it felt forced. The female um, protagonist was just, that was not her, that was not her personality. And if I would have tried to couple her up with another character, it would have been a disservice. So instead I, I just let this platonic relationship grow. And, and I think the book is better for it. Well, that's even more exciting because there's, there's something beautiful about platonic relationships and very much needed and should be nurtured in our lifetime anyway. So that's exciting. So when you write your books in that, do you get paid? Are you working with an agent and they pay you money up front or you just market all these independently? I'm independent. I did have a publisher for There Be Monsters, which was the one that won the Best Indie Book Award. We've since uh, parted ways and I have my own indie publishing LLC. That's what I've been putting things out under. Um, but I am one of those people you hear about that went the route of self-publishing and actually found a way to make it work. Um, I don't have an agent, which is not to say I haven't sought one in the past, but it's, uh, it's surprisingly difficult. Um, and I don't really want to get started on a whole thing about gatekeepers, but Kurt Vonnegut said it best that the literary world is full of them. So it's, it's been... It is, and it's very tempting. But I would have thought with selling The Ruins of Mars and selling over 100,000 copies that an agent would have been knocking at your door saying, hey, we'd like to talk with you. Well, we both have a good feeling about 2022, so we'll see what happens, won't we? Yeah, you need to you need to get that out there more and let everybody know that because that is just extraordinary. To be able to sell 5,000, I think, would still be worth an agent come knocking, but 100,000, and then you won you know these book awards on top of that. So that's you know kudos to you and that. So when you were growing up as a little boy, did you think about, oh, I'm going to be a writer when I grow up? Or were you thinking about, you know, different types of careers? I did think about it at one point. My dad got into doing genealogy at one point, as adults do at a, of a certain age. And he, uh, we were out, we were visiting fa uh, family uh, in, uh, in Missouri. We were at the Ozarks. And so he, he went and he did some digging. And my last name is Quarles. And he found an old Quarles plantation and he went and he spoke with them. And lo and behold, you know, he, he did some connecting of the dots and I've never, never really followed up on this, but it makes for a good story that uh, we are the same Quarles of the Samuel Clemens clan um, or Mark Twain. Oh, wow. And that uh, Becky, cousin Becky was actually Quarles. So from a young age, my dad was saying, you know, we are, we're people of words. He's a storyteller like me. He can, he can tell us, he can spin a yarn or two. And I wanted to be a writer ever since I learned that there might be some tangential connection between me and Mark Twain, because I actually loved Mark Twain, even as a kid, my dad would read it to me. Um, so since about then, since I was young, I, I had wanted to be a writer. Of course, I also wanted to be a chef and I wanted to be all these other things too, because kids do that. Um, and a filmmaker as I got into my teens. But I really did rediscover that love of writing uh, shortly after college. And it was with the Ruins of Mars trilogy and the fact that it had such immediate success kind of just cemented like, this is what I should be doing. This is very right, you know, after years of sort of being in school and doing other things and pursuing filmmaking and the, all the technical aspects, which I love, don't get me wrong. But when I sat down and started writing out a story, it just felt so right. I realized, I think this is something I've been wanting to do for most of my life. Well, I think you'll be as, as famous and well-known as Stephen King. I think wow, your books are, are worthy of that. And, you know, in due time, it'll probably be 
you know, sooner rather than later, that's for sure. It's interesting about your backstory, though. You graduated with a, a BA in film, and then you moved to South Korea and mm -hmm. to teach English, and then you were deeply impacted by that experience and returned back to uh, the U.S. So what impacted you in South Korea that you left? Well, it was uh, a very different world um, than I was used to. I had done some traveling already. I'd been to Thailand to teach English uh, in 2004 after I'd graduated from high school. Um, but something about South Korea was just familiar enough. Um, and by that, I mean, there are aspects of South Korean culture and that, that are vaguely Western or, or we would recognize them. They're not as totally um, different like something like Southeast Asia, Thailand. Uh, so you could sometimes sort of fool yourself into thinking that you knew what you were doing uh, when, when I lived there, that I understood the world that I was operating in. Um, and then moments of culture shock would follow and you'd realize, I'd realize, oh my gosh, you know, like I am really in a, I'm really a world away from everything I know. Um, the students impacted me, the, the staff that I worked with impacted me, um, the history of South Korea, which I knew very little of before I moved there, the friends I made, the South Korean friends. Um, it was all just so uh, formative, also being on my own, um, a world away from any kind of support network that uh, most people would you know, expect to have after college, you know, mom and dad, not too far away, stuff like that. Uh, it was just a totally formative time in my life. And it factored heavily into the ruins of Mars because uh, several of the characters are Korean. Um, Korea is an important, uh, it's an important location early on in the novels. Uh, it's where the AI, which are massively important characters, are developed and programmed. So it just, it really tied in beautifully with the story I was trying to tell. And I drew heavily on my experience um, to sort of texture those novels. Very good. Now, you said you're working on a, a biography about life and the disappearance of Stephen Kubaki, a man who mm -hmm. went missing in 1978 and he woke up in a field. 15 months later, I never re remembered anything. So tell me a little bit about that. Well, I'll tell you what I can tell you, because I am under uh, contract with oh, okay. Dr. Kubaki. Um, I can tell you my side of it, which is that I knew him for many, many years. Uh, he was a mentor and a friend. Uh, we did a lot of shamanic work together. Um, and uh, I guess you could call it sort of developing and honing that intuition and really finding out how far it can take you. Um, meditation and hypnotherapy and past life regression and just kind of all kinds of interesting stuff that also, not for nothing, very much factored and influenced my writing. Um, I would meditate on characters. I would meditate on scenes. I would try to visualize and travel to them, you know, so all this sort of stuff we did together, he and I, and I, I thought I knew him really well and, and he was a friend. And one day uh, my wife called me, this is six years after having known him. Uh, she called me at work to say she'd had a strange dream about him. She's an incredible lucid dreamer. And in the dream, she had spoken to him and they'd had this exchange and she came away from it just feeling like there was something important about it. So she Googled him um, just to see if there was 
some, you know, she Googled him with the keywords of things that they talked about in the dream to see if maybe he'd written about it or spoken about it. And lo and behold, she finds out there's this huge treasure trove of all these, this, there's this mystery of, uh, around him, about him. And there's this treasure trove of conspiracy theories and um, ideas that different people have as to what happened to him. Because indeed he did disappear. Um, and indeed he did re-emerge. Um, and the facts are that as they stand now, that he has no recollection of where he was for those 15 months. So when I uh, approached him after having that conversation with my wife and I said, Steve, we're friends. How come I've never heard this about you? Where were you? He said, I'll tell you, but we, we need to write the book together. And so we began that day on the project. Uh, it's gone through a few revisions and a few different names, but it's, um, it's, in complete, it's, in, it's completed now. It's in an editing phase. And uh, it is quite a story. I will say that. It is quite a story. And I think people who are interested in this case will not be disappointed. Oh, how exciting. Well, congratulations book. to you. I bet this will be a film as well. I mean, how could it not be a film? Oh, my goodness. I know. This is part of why I think 2022 is going to be a, a very interesting year. Very good. Very good. So what is intuition to you? Hmm. I, I think a lot about the, um, the maxim of the Delphic oracles, know thyself. Mm -hmm. And how intuition is a, is a knowing and a trusting of yourself because you have, we all have intuition. We all have th this voice or, force that is trying to inform us whether or not we listen uh, and trust it is where that uh, maxim know thyself comes in you know if you feel that you know yourself then you can trust your intuition um, because it's coming from a place that you understand at least in theory um, so that's, that's sort of what I think about when I think of that word, it always pops into my head. Well, how does intuition, you know, speak to you? Is it a feeling? Do you see, you know, uh, images in your mind's eye or you get you know, goosebumps and that type of thing? I have a mixture. I have a feeling for sure. I think everybody knows that feeling, but it's very hard to describe. Um, occasionally I have dreams that seem important and then lo and behold they do come to be important not always in a way that I'm expecting but for me it's 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 usually a feeling um and I hate I hate the phrase gut feeling but you know the gut is the second brain and there's a lot that's going on in there chemically so I kind of I kind of go with my gut when I'm getting a feeling about something I listen very good. Very good. So you have this little boy and it's only about a year old now, huh? Actually, he's only, he'll be six months next month. Oh, wow. He's, so we just had him. How exciting. Yeah. Well, kudos yeah, to just, you. Thank you. He's our, he's our world. He's, he's truly wonderful and magical as all parents probably know and say about their own children. What is the next series going to be? I, I've really been listening to what readers have to say, uh, what, you know, and, and what my brand is based off of what they're, what people are telling me. I have written actually a mystery sort of detective 
uh, noir-esque story. That was the man from Rome. That's very, it's, it's classified as urban fantasy because there are fantasy elements, but it takes place in modern day Rome, but it's, it's a mystery and a thriller. So I, I, I've recently been seeing a lot of interest in that book, especially on TikTok, weirdly enough, of all places. Um, sales have really picked up since I began advertising it there or making videos about it. So I am juggling the idea of uh, putting out a second Man From Rome book. I have about a quarter of one already written, um, but I shelved it when there wasn't enough interest early on to pursue something, to pursue There Be Monsters, which was the right move because that did go on to win the Best Indie Book Award and, and kind of put me on the map in that regard. And that was the one that became a bestseller on Amazon just recently. Yeah, that's exciting. Well, let me go back to that marketing thing because I was talking to somebody earlier today about TikTok and different things to start marketing. So you, because again, you're, you're self-published. You have your own publishing company, which is pretty significant. You have, you know, at least seven plus books and another one you're working on and tying that up. And the one book, The the, the Ruins of Mars, sold over 100,000 copies, which is just so extraordinary to be. I mean, you should be an inspiration to everybody on, on many different levels, no matter where you are in your in one's career or, or business. So you talk about marketing and you're marketing on, on TikTok. So what do you do? Do you read little excerpts of your book or do you jump up and down and dance to it? I mean, <laughs> how, do you, how do you do that? Well, for thankfully, I'm finally getting something out of that film school degree uh, yeah. because TikTok is a visual medium uh, and I'm a filmmaker, or at least I was at one point. So I make little videos. Usually they're fairly um, kinetic. Um, they always feature the book. Uh, the, a physical copy of the book. Like all my books are available in ebook and audiobook and also paperback because I really want, you know, anybody to be able to access them however it is that they choose to read. But when I go to make a TikTok video, I will usually show the physical book themselves because I'm proud of the design. Um, they're all beautiful books, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, and I'll kind of do, you know, something kinetic, and then I will maybe include um, some audio from the audio book. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So you can kind of like get an idea what the book looks like, what it sounds like if you were to buy the audio book. And then, of course, I got to put some music to it and a few edits. And um, what I like about TikTok is it allows you to kind of experiment because, like you said, it's hard to pay attention to it for very long. Everybody's attention spans are so short. You can, like, reinvent yourself every five minutes on TikTok if you want to. You, your brand is a lot more fluid, I feel, um, on TikTok than it is in other places where you really need to be consistent with your branding. Um so I've been having fun experimenting on there. And like I said, I bring my film school background to it, which is great. And I, it certainly helps my videos um, have a more polished look than some of the others that I've seen um, from self-published authors or indie authors that are trying to make waves on TikTok. Yeah, well, very good. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you, Dylan Quarles. And you are a prolific writer, a genius in marketing this, and probably one of the few, the only person I ever knew that could sell 100,000 books and that you had self-published. So I want everybody to go read your books and everybody to talk to their favorite producer on making one of your books at least at least one and then a couple more to follow to into a film. Here, here. Thank you so much for having me on, Victoria. This has been so fun. Love that. Thank you so much. All right, Dylan. Have a good day. And we'll talk you again. too. Wasn't that an exciting interview? I love talking with people like Dylan Quarles who has a passion for his writing and 
he gets up and he does it, you know, and, he, and he's got it structured. He, he doesn't have to work in the wee hours of the morning like he did when he once started. And I hope he inspired you. And hats off to Dylan for selling 100,000 self-published books. And I hope, and I'm sending out my magic vibes everywhere that a producer buys the rights to the Steve Quebecki story and maybe the Mars story. But anyway, check out Dylan Quarles. Buy his books on Amazon.com. Quarles is Q-U-A-R-L-E-S. And before I let you go, I have to talk about one thing that I'm passionate about, and that's all about technology. Hands-free, voice-activated content, as in Amazon Alexa. If you've ever dreamt about getting featured on Amazon Alexa, here's your opportunity. I can show you with my team how you can create really engaging content to expand your audience, raise your visibility, and of course, attract new business, new clients, and be featured on the whole Amazon Alexa, Alexa apps, the Alexa skill. And you know what? It's Alexa's also in a lot of new made cars these days. So check out studiocarlton.com. Thanks for tuning in today. Studio Carlton is produced by Weston Media Group, LLC, Atlanta, Georgia.